here at Calvary, one of the things that we do is we take a book of the Bible and we go chapter by chapter all the way through. We just kind of teach through. But um, today, as we get into Ephesians chapter one, we're only going to look at a couple of verses. And the reason for that is we're going to talk about the concept of predestination. And it's one of the most challenging uh, topics in all of Christianity, especially in the, con- you know, the, the current time. And uh, so uh, your understanding of this concept will determine how you read the rest of the book. And so we're going to talk about that today because our understanding might be very different than some things that, that you've heard in the past. So this is, you know, when I say it's challenging, denominations divide over this, uh, churches split over this, uh, seminaries are built over this, books are written, and, and I only have a few minutes today to share some perspective. So I realize I'm just going to be sharing some perspective. I might be, just because of the subject matter, I might be a little bit more tied to my notes than, than normal. And the big question is, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Because, uh, you know, we, we only have so much time. So as we get into this today, I want to begin with a verse, and uh, the verse is in Ephesians chapter 1, and, and the verse goes like this, verse 17, I put it on your outline, Paul the Apostle writes, and he says, I keep asking that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and then I've underlined, so that you may know him better, that you may know him better. God wants us to know him better, and, and that's, that's very important because our concept of God uh, determines how we know him. And our concept of God is often shaped by the denominational background, the church background that we grew up in. And, and so, and you know, that's one of the ways, but also uh, just so you know, our concept of God is often shaped and very much shaped by our relationship with our parents, especially our father. How we relate to our father is typically how we relate to God. And uh, so for some of us, that's, that's, that's been some, somewhat challenging. So our concept of God becomes the lens by which we read the Bible. And each one of us has a lens as to how we read the Bible. And so God wants us to know him better. So to know him better, we have to make sure that we are getting to know the God of the Bible. So when Paul, the apostle, goes to Ephesus and we're studying his, his letter, when he went to Ephesus, which was very pagan, the, the God that Paul taught was very different than the pagan gods. You see, the, the pagan gods, um, in order to get them to answer your prayer, you had to sacrifice and sacrifice and pray and pray and do and do. And, and hopefully, if you did enough, prayed enough, sacrificed enough, then maybe, just maybe, that God would answer your prayer which was very different than the God that Paul taught, which was a God who couldn't wait to love his people and bless his people. So how do you know if your God is more looking pagan than looking like the God of the Bible? Well, here's how you know. Um, Something doesn't happen the way that you thought it was going to happen. And you say, but God, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. Well, that's how you got the attention of the pagan gods. Very different than the God of the Bible. And we'll certainly be talking about that as we go. So I want to share something today that I think is vitally important. And and so as we do this, 
I recognize that we all come from different denominational backgrounds, different church backgrounds, different perspectives, and so we all have a concept of who God is, and and that concept might be very different for, for each of us. So if I share some things today that you find are just outside of your box, then I would just ask, would you just, just consider, just consider. And, uh, and maybe we can realign uh, our concept of God with the God of the Bible. So in order to do this, I wanna ask you a couple of questions there on your outline, and I'm gonna share some verses, and I'm just gonna ask you if you believe this is true. So the first verse uh, comes from Malachi, and God says, I, the Lord, do not change. How many of you believe that? Good, good, good. I, the Lord, do not change. Now, in the book of James, it's not on your outline, but he says, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is always the same all the time. Very important for our study today. Um, Here's another verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. So the, the first question is, how many of you believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you believe that? Good. You know, what's interesting to me is that in that little passage, the very next line says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, which we could say to believe that God has somehow changed would be a varied and strange teaching. Does that make sense? So, so don't be carried away by that because he is always the same. Now, here, here's another verse. God is no respecter of persons. Now, what that means is that God does not show favoritism. Do you believe that? Come on, guys, you know that you believe that God likes your wife a lot more than you. (laughs) Am I the only one? I mean, I'm like, he puts up with me because of her, right? So I'm with Cheryl. So deep down, deep down. So theologically we say he's no respecter of persons, but but here's the thing. If we were to be honest, we look around the room and we go, God can answer that person's prayer and God would answer that person's prayer, but I don't think God would answer my prayer. It's because we say the right thing, but deep down, we, we think that he is a respecter of persons. He likes some people more than us. But, but we would agree, theologically, uh, even if our heart isn't completely there, that God doesn't show favoritism and that he doesn't change. And, and so knowing that, if God doesn't change, many times what happens for us is we struggle with God's will. God, what is your will? What is your will? So what I want to do today, and we're going to do this several times as we go through Ephesians, I want to give you a filter, a filter for understanding God, the God who never changes. And so you'll remember um, last year we went through Genesis and we talked about this early on, but but um, in, uh, in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospels, some Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him a question. I put that there on your outline. And uh, it says, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So another way of saying that is, is it God's will for us to be able to just divorce our wives whenever we, we want to? So Jesus responds to that question and he says, he answered and said, have you, not, have you not read that he who created them, and I've underlined created them from the beginning, from the beginning, it's pointing us in a direction, made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus quotes there from Genesis chapter two, man is in the garden. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they go, you know, what is God's will in this circumstance? 
Jesus just pointed them back to the beginning, how God had set it up. We would say there in the garden, because that's where he's quoted in Genesis chapter two. So write this down and we'll unpack it, but Jesus would say, to know God's will, just look at the garden. That's how he set it up. That was his will. That was his will. So we ask, we ask ourselves the question, so how was it in the garden? And there Jesus quotes from Genesis 2. Now, you and I know that in Genesis chapter 3, uh, Eve encounters the serpent and uh, there, there's the sin and sin enters the world and death through sin and, and it began a whole cascade of events that took place. So it changed man's circumstances when sin entered the world. But let me ask you a question. Did God change? So God didn't change, but man's circumstances changed. So if you want to know what God wants and God thinks, well, you just look at how God set it up because he hasn't changed. So when you look at Adam and Eve, if we were to look at Adam and Eve and say, was it God's will for Adam and Eve to have not enough or just barely enough or all that they needed? All that they needed, it was all there. So the question is, has God changed? Well, no, God hasn't changed. So it's always his will to have for us to have all that we needed. Now, I understand that um, we live in a fallen world and things happen, but, but it's not God's will, which is why when God came to the earth, Jesus comes to the earth, and he's teaching the 5,000 men and their families, so there's about 15,000 people, and there's lack, and uh, it's time to do something. You'll remember the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and if you read the story closely, it says that they were all stuffed, and then there was leftovers. Why was that? Because he's not the God of not enough, and he's not the God of barely enough. He's the God of abundance, all that you need. So if you're going through a hard time financially and there's lack, you don't want to say, well, you know, we can't pay our bills. We're going through this. Hard. This just must be God's will. Well, no, God hasn't changed. Our circumstances have changed. We live in a fallen world. But don't say that God has changed because he hasn't changed. Well, what about this? In the garden, would you agree that everyone uh, was healthy, that nobody had disease? Would you say that was his will there in the garden? So then sin came into the world, and that's not always the case. But let me ask you, uh, has God changed? So God hasn't changed. Our circumstances have changed, which is why when Jesus showed up, uh, he was constantly healing and healing and healing. That's his will. So that's why you can't find the story in the gospels where Jesus goes, I'm healing you, I'm healing you, I'm healing you, I'm he I've got something special for you. I'm not gonna heal you. I'm going to give you a horrible disease. And in that horrible disease, it's gonna be debilitating. You're not gonna be able to do life the way that other people do life. And it's, it's gonna just destroy so much of your life. But I want you to know, but it's in that that you're gonna find out how much I love you. Is that story in your gospel? It's not there anywhere because he doesn't do that. How about this? He's healing this one, this one, this one, and this one. Then he comes to this one and he says, you know what? Um, you, I'm doing something special. I'm giving you a horrible disease. And again, it's gonna be debilitating because I want to teach you something. Is that story in your Bible? No, because God doesn't use sickness to teach you anything. He teaches, he teaches us through his word. That's his method but he doesn't send sickness to teach us. So God has not changed. We live in a fallen world, sickness happens, but you never wanna say it must be God's will. You never wanna say that. 
God has not changed. Now, here's what we're told. Satan comes to kill, to rob, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Let me tell you, if you can't pay your bills and you're struggling with a debilitating disease, it's very hard to say, I have abundant life. You wanna make very sure, how am I saying this? You wanna make sure that you're not attributing to God uh, what is what Satan does, because God doesn't do those things, and he's never changed, he's never changed. Does that make sense? So somebody comes to me and they say, Pastor, we've been married for a while, and we're trying to have some babies, and it's, it's, not, it's not happening. It must be God's will that we don't have kids. Well, wait a minute, what was the first commandment that God gave in the garden? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Well, but it's not happening. Well, is he a respecter of persons? Is this what he wants for everybody else, but just not for you? Well, no, he, he wants that for you. That's, that's his will. If you want that, that's what he wants. So you don't wanna say, if it's not happening, that it must be God's will. You can say, we live in a fallen world. There's things that happen, but, but it's not God's will. How, how about this one? I'm telling you this one because I was 35 years old when I got married, so this one's special to me. But um, somebody will say, you know, hasn't happened and, and uh, I wanna get married, but, but I can't seem to find anybody. I wonder if it must be God's will for me to be single. You ever heard anybody say that, something like that? And, and, and so, but, but here's the thing. What did God say in the garden? He said, it's not good for man to be what? Alone. And it's not good for man, it's not good for woman. So it was God's will that, that you do find somebody and you get married. Now we live in a fallen world. There's other variables that come into it, but you never want to say it must be God's will because God has not changed. So always remember that God's will, God's plan was in the Garden of Eden. Something happened, something changed, man's condition changed, but God did not change. His will did not change just because man's condition changed. So when they wanted to know God's will, Jesus pointed them back to the garden because God never changes. Now here, here's uh, one that's very important for us today as we talk about predestination. In the garden, would you say that everyone that God created there in the garden, that God wanted a relationship with everyone he created there in the garden? Would you say that? So he, he wanted a relationship, he had a relationship, you and I know the story. Uh, some things happened, sin entered in. Not everybody enters into the relationship now, but God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed, which is why it says there in your outline, it says the Lord's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that's gonna be important for our story today. God wants everybody to come into a relationship with him. I'm going to skip over the next couple of verses just because of time, so let's go to the back of, of our outline. So we're gonna look at a couple of verses today. We're gonna to talk about the concept of predestination. Next week, we're gonna to begin to work through the chapter, and I realize that we all come from very different denominational backgrounds, different church backgrounds, and, uh, but if you've ever heard the concept called Calvinism or Reformed theology, if you grew up in that background, then... Uh, you're going to read the Bible very uh, one way and you're gonna find that we read it very differently. And so we need to know this before we get into the rest of the book of Ephesians. Have I put you to sleep yet? Okay, let's see what I can do. All right, so 
if you grew up in a Calvinistic background, and I'm not bashing, I'm just saying, so just giving some understanding, then you grew up with an acronym called TULIP. How many of you grew up with the acronym called TULIP? Okay, good. Um, well, maybe not good, but, uh, but we're gonna talk about it. <clears throat> so the T would stand for total depravity, which would just mean that there's nothing that you can do in your condition. You can't be saved, so God has to do something. We'd say, okay, that, that, that makes uh, pretty good sense. But the next, the U in TULIP stands for unconditional election. Now, what that means is that God has elected certain people to be part of his family, and at the same time, there are other people that he has not elected to be part of his family. So they don't really have a choice in that. The choice is only God's, not them. Which leads to the L, which means limited atonement. So in Calvinism, they wouldn't hold that Jesus died for the world, but he died for the elect that he chose. We would take a very different view. Now, if God chose you, total depravity, uh, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, then the next thing would be the I, which is irresistible grace. So if God chose you, there's nothing that you can do because God chose you, and it's based upon his sovereignty not your choice. And so the, your, your choice has nothing to do with that. So you're going to be a believer because he chose you and he chooses some to not be. And then there's the uh, P, which is just the perseverance of the saints. So God unconditionally elects, chooses who is going to be, and then chooses who is not going to be. And uh, those that he has chosen will be preserved. They don't lose their salvation because it's all based upon God's sovereignty. Now, just so you know, and we'll talk about this later on in Ephesians, I believe in the doctrine of eternal security. Once you are saved, you can't be unsaved. And we'll talk about that later. So that's a story for another day. And uh, it's, it's very good news, especially for some of us. So we'll, uh, we'll go on. <laughs> so when some hold that God, through election, chose some people to be saved and then chooses others to not be saved, uh, we would be on the opposite side of that. And we hold that the God who never changes, his will never changes, uh, we would hold that he never changes. But again, denominations, churches, seminaries are all, all divided on this. And so I'll just share our perspective. So the question, does God choose some people to go to heaven? And at the same time, does God choose some people to go to hell? So based upon their concept of God, it changes how they read the Bible and some hold that God chooses some to heaven and then at the same time chooses some to go to hell. So with that, we're gonna jump in. We're only gonna look at a few verses today and uh, hopefully uh, this will at least begin uh, the conversation. So verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You wanna underline that, it's gonna be very important. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we're going to talk about or we're gonna to know today and we're gonna unpack this next week and through as we go through, but Ephesians is written to those who are in Christ. You wanna write that down. And that's what he says, to those who are in Christ, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, you're gonna encounter the term in Christ or in him 36 times in, in this book. So the emphasis, this is all about those who are in him. 
And that's important because today, again, we're talking about predestination. So does God predestine some people to go to heaven and some others to go to hell? Or does God predestine those who are in him to become holy and blameless before him? And that's gonna be the big, big debate. Then we come to verse three. Now, verse three, uh, you need to write this down to understand what we're going to talk about. Verse, from verse three to 14 is all one sentence, one sentence. It's 12 verses long. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament. When you go to seminary, one of the things that they do is there, there are these debates about who wrote, and they call this Pauline authorship. And uh, one of the ways that you know that Paul wrote a certain book of the Bible is Paul uses sentences that, that our teachers would have failed us for. They're, 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 they go on forever. And so this one sentence is 12 verses long. Now that's important. You also need to know that, that in the original Greek, there was no capitals or smaller letters and there was no punctuation. So there's no periods, there's no commas or anything like that. And there's no spaces in between the words. So because of that, um, when they translated the Bible into English, realizing that those of us who are in the English-speaking world, we can't wrap our minds around a single sentence that's 12 verses long. So to be a help to us, uh, they, they put in periods and they put in commas and all different types of punctuation that's not there in the original. In the original, it's just one sentence. And, and so sometimes, and that's good because that's how we, we think, but, but you have to know that the punctuation itself is not part of the translation, that's an interpretation. This one says, I think a period goes here, I, I think a comma goes here. Let me just show you one example, maybe we'll show a few more next week, and I find this absolutely fascinating, hopefully you do too. So notice verse four. Verse four, it says, just as he chose us, chose us who are, we would say, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you, where it says holy and blameless in him in love, the period is after the word love? Anybody here has got a period after the word love? Okay, right down here. Okay, good. Now, how many of you, you don't have a period after in love, the period is before in love? How many of you have that? Okay. So how many of you, when it says in love, there's no punctuation after that at all? There's no comma, there's no nothing. How many of you got that? Okay. Now, how many of you, it says in love, comma? How many of you have that? Okay, good. Now, how many of you have in love, colon, after that? Okay. So can you see how the punctuation can change some of the things and all of our Bibles are different? So let me read it like this. Just as he chose us in, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, period. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So uh, just, I, 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 did you find that interesting, by the way? So, so the whole point is just to say that the punctuation is put in there but depending on how you read the Bible, you're gonna change that, you're gonna change that. So just to be aware of that. So our concept of God, and hopefully the Holy Spirit leading, will tell us how to actually 
read this. I'm gonna pick it up in verse three. Blessed, is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless, underline holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, next week, I'm gonna show you the difference between being born again and adoption. And uh, so you, that's very important. We'll talk about that next week. So verse four, he chose us in him uh, to be holy and blameless. And then it says, in love, he predestined us. So here's the question. Does Paul mean that God has chosen individuals before they were born, before the foundation of the world, to be placed in him? Or has God chosen whoever is in him to become holy and blameless before him? And that's the big debate. It's the big debate. So when Paul says he chose us in him, the in him are the faithful in Christ Jesus that we talked about in verse one and we underline. So we would hold that he chose the faithful in Christ to become holy and blameless in his sight. So that's the first thing and we'll come back to that. Verse 11, everybody skip down to verse 11. And in verse 11 it says, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. So does this mean that God has predetermined or predestined certain individuals to believe? Or has God chosen believing individuals for a predetermined end? So what we're going to do, in order to make this understandable, I want to give you an illustration. And so if you take your outline and you look on the very back, you're gonna see a YouTube channel. It's by a guy named Dr. Leighton Flowers. And his YouTube channel is called Soteriology 101. And, and I, he's somebody that I have a profound respect for. And just so you know, on the front end, I am shamelessly stealing his content. <laughs> and I'm giving him no credit. That's who I am. So, but I tell you that because I hope when you come to certain, when you come to certain passages that you'll be able, that, that lead to predestination, thinking of it very differently, that you'll be able to go to that YouTube channel, look up those verses and get a different perspective. So with that, um, I wanna give you an illustration. We have two baseball teams and uh, we're gonna, and the two baseball teams have two coaches. So um, the first coach, we're gonna call him Coach Calvin. You wanna write him down, Coach Calvin. And, uh, and, uh, and then the next coach on the second team, we're going to call him Coach Hobbs, Coach Hobbs. I just pulled these names out of a hat. So now, Coach Calvin and his baseball team, and you wanna write this down, he chooses who is on the team. He's gonna choose who is on the team. And uh, he chooses some, but he tells others, you can't be on the team. Uh, I don't choose you, I, I choose this one here, but I don't choose you. And we call this the sovereignty of the coach. So he chooses who is and who is not on the team. Now, the other coach, his name is uh, Coach Hobbs, he's very different. 
And Coach Hobbs, and you wanna write this down, he invites whosoever will to join the team. Whosoever will to join the team. Very interesting, one of the things that Jesus said there in your outline, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So Coach Calvin decides who is and who is not. Uh, Coach Hobbs is gonna be very different, so different that Coach Hobbs will send people out into the highways and the byways and will implore people to come and join the team. So you wanna keep that in mind. So verse four, then it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So before the foundation of the world, so here's what we'd say about these two coaches. Both coaches decide before the season, before the season, that their players will be well-trained and ready to play. And we're gonna say they will be holy and blameless. Both coaches have decided before the season begins the goal or the destination uh, for those who are on their team. Both coaches, there in your outline, predestine their players on their team to be conditioned into the image of good, well-trained baseball players. That's what, uh, uh, um, an, another way of, of saying there in verse four, holy and blameless. Now, another way of saying this, if you go to the book of Romans there on your outline, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So in verse four, predestined to become holy and blameless. Here, predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. What you'll notice is not predestining to be on the team, predestining those who are on the team to become conformed to the image of his son. So in the mind of Paul, as he writes Ephesians, which of these two coaches, uh, both of which have predetermined the end result for their team, would best represent the mind of God as he's making choices for his team? Is it the God who chooses who is on the team and not on the team? Or is it the God who says whosoever will and, and uh, goes into the highways and byways. We would say that Hobbes would best represent that. So we would hold that Ephesians chapter one, this passage is not about predetermining which individuals will be in Christ and which ones won't. It's about God predetermining what will become of those who are in Christ through faith. Again, when you put the comma, it's gonna make all the difference in the world. This is not about which ones will be on the team and which ones won't. It's about what will happen to those who join his team through faith. So we would hold that predestination here in Ephesians is not about God causing some to believe while passing over the rest. It's about the destination that God has set for those who are in him. Uh, the destination of those in him is set before, beforehand. So the major question is, how do you and when do you become in him? Is it before the foundation of the world? Or, or something else? Well, fortunately for you and I, Paul answers that question in this chapter. So I put there on your outline, verse 13, you can read it in your Bible or you can read it on the outline, but you wanna underline. Notice what he says. And you also were included in Christ, included in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, having believed, underline that, you were marked with him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that next week. So you wanna write down, we are included in Christ when we hear, believe, and then we are sealed, but not included before the foundation of the world. What was decided before the foundation of the world is that those who would be in Christ would become holy and blameless in his sight. So this passage is not about predetermining which individuals will be in Christ and which ones won't. It's about God predetermining what will become of those who are in Christ through faith. Let me give just another quick illustration. Let's say tomorrow morning, there's going to be an airplane that's leaving Palm Beach International and it's going to fly to Atlanta. So we would say that the destination of the airline has been predestined, it's going to Atlanta. Saying that the flight is going to Atlanta is not the same thing as saying we're predestining who's going to get on the plane. What's been predetermined is where the plane is going, not who gets on the plane. Does that make sense? Good. So God can decide that beforehand, whoever is in Christ, uh, that they will be made holy and blameless. So there in your outline, just to sum it up, and and, uh, I know this is very uh, compact, but this passage that God has, this passage indicates that God has predetermined that the faithful in Christ Jesus, which is verse one and throughout the whole uh, chapter, will become holy and blameless. We're gonna call that sanctification and they will be adopted. We'll talk about the difference between being born again and adopted next week. Again, this is not about God deciding who is and who won't come to him. It's about determining what will become of those who are in him by faith. Just as Coach Hobbs has determined what will become of everyone who joins his team, God has determined what will become of everyone who joins his team. Just as an airline predetermines or predestines its destination and uh, the destination is predestined for everybody who gets on the plane, but the getting on the plane is not the part that's predestined. So God predestines the destination, but not who gets on the plane. Coach Hobbs has predetermined that those who are on the team will become the best players that they can be, which is why you have verses like this. They're on your outline and we conclude with this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. You're not predestined to become his and predestined to not become his. But when you become his, the destination to be holy and blameless, to become conformed in the image of his son That is the predestination. Does that make sense? So that then becomes the lens that we will read Ephesians. And the understanding of this comes from our concept of who God is. When he created the garden and he put man in, it was his will that everyone that he created would have a relationship with him. And God has not changed. God has not changed. So with that, we're going to go ahead and close in prayer. And uh, did you find that interesting? For the three of you that did, we're gonna go with that. (laughs) But what I wanna say is that um, this means um, 
that our responsibility has not been removed. You see, the reason our responsibility has not been removed is because we have a response ability. We have a response ability. And so God gave to us the ability to respond. And so if you're here today and you don't know him, then you want to respond today by saying, I do want to know him. And that would be your response. And as we close in prayer today, you have that opportunity. And if you're making that decision today to know him, then I would encourage you to tell somebody, let somebody know, stop by the the welcome desk out front and, and let somebody know so that we can help get you on your path knowing him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being the God who never changes. We realize our situation has changed, our condition has changed, but you never changed. And and so Father, we also look to you for those of us who don't know you and we just say, I I want to respond to the invitation. I, I want Jesus. I want to know you. And so we look to you, Jesus, and we say, thank you for receiving me. Thank you for forgiving me of everything I've ever done. Come into my life. I want you, I want to know you, and I want to walk with you. And he promises that if you invite him in, he will never leave. If that's you today, make sure you let somebody know. Lord, I thank you for this congregation, their love for you, their love for the things uh, of you, your spirit, your word. And I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.